0: I'm Kevin Neubauer, a partner in Seward and Kissel's investment management practice. Our practice, which is one of the largest in the industry, works with investment managers across all strategies and sizes. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Fundraising Focus. In this series, we have conversations with different individuals and firms that are allocating capital to private fund managers, are involved in the capital raising process, or have experience managing a private fund advisory business and have raised capital for their fund products. Before we get started, it's important to note that the discussions on this podcast are for informational purposes only and are not intended and should not be considered to be legal advice and no attorney client relationship is being created by this discussion. The opinions expressed by the individuals on this podcast, including podcast guests are opinions of those individuals only and do not reflect the opinions of Surya Kissel, Or the respective firms of those guests. Any information in this episode should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. So, with that, we're excited to welcome Jun Hong Hang, founder and chief investment officer of Crescent Cove Advisors, as today's guest. Jun, thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you. I've been very excited to be on and look forward to sharing my experiences with your audience.
0: Great. Well, before we start, do you think you could just give us a, a minute or so background on yourself and Crescent Cove? Absolutely.
1: So I started my career uh, working at a few financial services firms, both in New York and in Asia, with a focus on complex private deals in direct lending and distressed debt. I eventually joined the founding team of an investment firm focused on credit and equity, including special situations and risk arbitrage. In 2016, I returned to the US to launch Crescent Cove. And Crescent Cove is an investment firm with both private credit and equity strategies focused solely on technology.
0: Excellent. Well, thanks for that background. Um, So let's get right into it. So Crescent Cove um, has successfully launched two funds in the past and, and has plans potentially for future funds. L- let's start with the first one. Walk us through what it was like bootstrapping a business and at the same time raising a first-time fund. What was your day-to-day like? How much time did you spend on fundraising versus the blocking and tackling that needed to get done to set up your business? Well, Kevin, the first fund is
1: always memorable because, It's really being in the trenches, blocking and tackling. Without capital, there is really no way to make new investments. And once you find an investment that you're high conviction on, the next step is to look for incremental capital to fund it. At the early stages, it is really about survival. For us, for Crescent Cove, we didn't have a big seed investor or anchor. What we realized very quickly is initially when we target a big number and post many conversations we kind of land at more of a realistic target and it's really trial and error with no fundraising you know we, i would say for fundraising with any strategy there's just a lot of luck and hard work one thing that we yep. learned is no one can do it on their own you know the best investor usually are not the best fundraisers as well. So it's just really critical to be very self aware of the, the limitations of one person fundraising.
0: Yeah, that's, that's an excellent point. And that's something that's, that's definitely rung true with some of the managers. We've worked on that just because you're a good investor doesn't mean you're a good fundraiser. And that really leads us to our next question. So, you know, what do you think makes the most sense for a first time fund manager? Or, or, or maybe you could tell us about you know, your experience specifically do you hire a placement agent, or do you attempt to hire a placement agent, or do you, you know, bring in internal resources like a dedicated investor relation, business development person? What's the best approach?
1: Yeah, that's a great question, Kevin. You know, fundraising is a very humbling experience. The experience garnered from the first funds fundraising is very useful for future raises, and it helps one understand the ingredients of success. In the future, uh, we would we never forget our first check. And I would never forget it. It's a big milestone. I would say for first time fund managers, most placement agents do not work with a first time fund. It's just really difficult for them to take on a mandate. And regarding whether there are internal resources available in a first fund, frankly, you know, you can bring on someone as a partner to raise funds, but I'm not sure that there will be most economical. At the beginning, I was very involved in fundraising, looking for deals, trying to trying to source deals, but at the same time, trying to convince potential LPs to put money in the fund. Unfortunately, you know, this, even as you raise future funds, you have a track record, this doesn't stop.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so and that and that leads actually nicely to the next thing I wanted to ask you about. So you know you raise the first fund, and you're successful. Congrats. That's like you said, you you never forget the first check, and I'm sure um, the first fund is the hardest. Then you move on to the second fund, and so we represent a lot of first time fund managers, and the challenge, you know, that the first time fund managers face are you know are special. I mean, at the end of the day, you're you're asking investors to take a risk, even if you have a pedigree and a track record. You don't have, you know, a demonstrated record of successfully managing an investment advisor and successfully managing a team um, in most cases. And so, so you're, the, the the challenges first-time fund managers face in fundraising, you know, are are particular to them. But but how did it change? So the capital raising process, you know, for fund two, how was it different than fund one? Did you did you approach different types of investors, and you know whether you did or didn't. Did the types of questions and diligence items you were faced with change? Um, What was the difference in your experience between raising Fund 1 and Fund 2?
1: What we found was the type of investors was different that we approached, and the type of questions that was asked was different as well. Once we decided to launch Fund 2, we already had sufficient traction in the market. We were talking to a few corporate pension plans that eventually agreed to anchor Fund 2. That was a massive turning point that led to the foundation of a successful launch. Just prior to launching Fund 2, I decided to allocate resources to hire a person who was dedicated to capital formation and capital partnerships. I I realized that I was not the best fundraiser, frankly, and it was just taking up a lot of my time. Thats it, even with a dedicated capital partnership team right now, I'm still right involved in the process.
0: Yeah, and that's, that's consistent with the experience of a lot of our clients too. it. You know, institutional investors in particular, particularly when they're making their first investment with a firm, you know are going to want to hear from the founder, are going to want to hear from the chief investment officer. So it's not as if you can completely delegate that responsibility even if you have you know, capable IR bd people um you know you mentioned you had an anchor from you know one or more pension plans in your in your second fund how did they how do they hear about you like you know what how, how did you connect with them you know when you were you probably just finishing up investing your first fund um you know how did you make a connection with them and how long were they looking at you you know what was that process like were they evaluating you even before you raised your first fund and they waited on the sidelines until they saw or at least got some idea of how your first fund was doing. What was that process like?
1: Yes. The pensions were really evaluating us from the middle of fund one. And on timeline basis, it probably took them about four to six months before we uh, signed the papers to launch fund two. And how we met them versus the right timing was completely different. Uh, we met them from friends of the firm, right? personal contacts, uh, investors who 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 participated in Fund One rating and told them about our strategy and our performance. and effectively, at that point when they spoke to us, the pensions was looking to allocate towards that strategy. So that was very important. Um, the timing worked out for both parties.
0: Yeah, timing is everything, right? So with your, you know, going back to the kind of difference between your first fundraise and your second fundraise, you know, in our experience anyway, you know, second time fundraises tend to get more interest from institutional investors as to infrastructure and vendor selection and risk management. And I think, you know, are, are maybe held to a higher standard than a first time fund manager, given that they've been in business for a few years and should have had a chance to work out the kinks. How did that process play out for you? Since since Crescent Cove was speaking with more institutional investors for Fund 2, how, if at all, did those institutional investors focus on your infrastructure, your risk management, and the vendors and service providers you guys were using?
1: Yes, well, infrastructure-wise, Kevin, you're absolutely right. Um, We made a lot of changes to our service providers after Fund 1, and it was because of a variety of reasons, one being that the more institutional investors expected it. Uh, We changed service providers such as administrator, our audit firm, some of the outsource compliance providers. So, and it actually took us some time to find the right fit for our funds. So yes, we
0: went through that process and it just took time. Yeah, it, it, but but interesting to see you've had a similar experience because we because we do see that with um, again second and sort of future time fund you know fund raises that there's more emphasis on infrastructure and um, you know it's 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 certainly at that time that a lot of our fund manager clients you know make adjustments and make improvements to sort of prep for those uh, for those diligence requests. Another thing you know we sometimes see with fund managers as they progress from their first fund to subsequent funds is that, you know, perhaps going back to what we were talking about earlier about the challenges first-time fund managers face, they may make decisions in investor negotiations that they come to regret because, you know, oftentimes if they're negotiating with a significant investor in fund one and they agree to a particular provision in their partnership agreement or agree to a particular provision in a side letter when that same investor comes back to invest in fund two, hopefully, they're going to expect that the deal they're getting in fund two isn't any worse than the deal they got in fund one. And so managers, if they're too flexible in admitting investors in fund one, end up sometimes living with those you know, potentially manager unfriendly terms forever. How did that experience go for you?
1: <laughs> this is a uh, this strikes at the heart of some of the issues that we are facing or we have faced. We for our anchor investor in Fund Two, they were very understanding, right, um, and they understood that we had a business to run, right, and and they were supporting uh, emerging manager. At the end of the day, they are focused on economics. We we had some MFN agreements. It's really a collaborative discussion with investors. And when you're an emerging manager, you know, similar to what you mentioned, you have to talk to everyone. And some investors are more collaborative, some are not. It's just kind of how it is. However, one thing that we found that was helpful for investors is to offer core investment opportunities. The lower their overall fees. Uh, I would say 90% of the investors, institutional investors that we talk to, really appreciate that. The emerging fund manager, if we have potential LPs who wanted home investment opportunities, we quickly learned that, that opportunities have to be along a slight a fund investment, not just a way to build, build goodwill. And for this aspect, it really depends. Right? When we were younger, we could offer it to build goodwill. But at this point, uh, we have stopped doing that. We 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 make it clear, hey, there has to be a commercial relationship. It's something that we are focused on, and if not, you know, thank you, but
0: it just doesn't work for us. Do you see the same thing, Kevin? Yeah, we we do. You know, I was just gonna jump in with that, Jim. like you know, it's a, it's a tricky issue, right? Because some investors, institutional investors in particular, I think view co-investment rights as something that belong to them uh, by virtue of the fact that they invested in a fund. And so they will expect that they at least get their pro rata share of any co-investment opportunity. Um, And so yes, it can be used as a carrot, it can be used to incentivize people to invest in your fund. But at the end of the day, some investors view it as something that belongs to them. (laughs) And so they're not necessarily um, uh, flattered when you offer it to them. They, they, they view it as something that's theirs. But yes, to your point, we do have a number of managers that will offer co-investment to investors um, that they don't necessarily have a relationship with, who are not invested in their current funds as a way to get to know them, as a way to, you know, foster relationships for potential uh, future investments in flagship funds. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a, I think it's a highly effective tool because, you know, it's typically... On a lower fee basis than a main fund. And, you know, and investors appreciate even if they don't end up taking advantage of the opportunity, they they like being asked um, and they like they like getting a look. So it it definitely can be a useful tool. The, the one other thing I'll say on this is that there does come a point that I think you know, Chris and cove sounds like may have reached this point where, you know, the raising co investment capital, particularly from investors that are not invested in one of your main funds. Is, is a challenging process operationally, right? Because you're, you're having discussions with a handful, potentially dozens, of prospective investors in a co-investment vehicle. And typically these are happening in a very compressed time period. And you're waiting for investors to you know, get through their diligence, get through their investment committee, and you have a very short period of time. And it's, it can just be a real hassle and a real time crunch to admit a handful or more of investors into a vehicle, you know, particularly if this is the kind of thing that's happening every couple of months, like that's just operationally a lot of time for the manager to spend. One thing we've seen to try to address that issue is a manager when establishing a fund will also establish, you know, a discretionary co-investment fund that invests alongside the main fund, but it doesn't give investors an opt-in or opt-out right. Investors make a a firm commitment to that co-investment vehicle that will take the co-investment opportunities that are available during the life of the fund. You know, there are some things that a manager needs to think through before they do that, but it eliminates the, you know, the time crunch and the operational hassle of having to constantly be fundraising in compressed periods of time. Anyway, just something we've been seeing lately. Um, June, can, can you share with us what your favorite part about being the founder of a successful investment management firm are and your least favorite part <laughs> i don't know how long the list is
1: <laughs> so the most favorite part is really comes down to the strategy that, that that we are focused on i really enjoy working with founders you know one of our most successful founders uh is austin russell he's 27 years old he listed a company and effectively became one of the youngest self-made billionaires It's really the journey of seeing founders grow from not only their company, but their own personal journey from, you know, be a scrappy bootstrap startup and through that whole process to become the successful, becoming a CEO of a very successful company. I, I really find it gratifying to help founders and entrepreneurs go through that process. I would say that was, that was probably at the top of my list of what makes it's most interesting, it really comes down to my strategy. And what is the least thing that's enjoyable? I would say for the first few years and even for us now, you don't own the business, the business owns you. Um, you're kind of, you, you really have to be active in all aspects of the business until uh, you reach a certain point. Uh, Crescent Cove, you know, we, we, are, we are on the way to getting to that point. By the end of the day, you, know, you really have to be on the ball and you know being active in the business regardless so that's probably <laughs> you know you, you don't own the business right let me make it clear the business owns you interesting so, interesting Those of that's who want to raise their own funds i think it's very important to note it's a minimum 10-year commitment
0: yeah there, there are no days off i'm sure and then you know for somebody who was thinking about launching their own firm trying to raise that first fund. You know, what, what's, what's the best piece of advice, you know, having been through this experience, you would give them? One of the biggest
1: issues, the hurdles that I faced originally was, you know, when you go, when you talk about a concept that this is something that you're thinking of doing, talk to a few close potential investors, everyone gets excited about the idea. And when most people would think it's a good thing to do, some of them would even say, we will invest in a fund. One thing they realize is once you decide to go down that path, some of those investors might not be there. So it's very important to have a, a buffer on these soft circle initial investors because some of them would very likely back out. I, I would say more often than not, those initial investors typically fall away.
0: Yeah, yeah some, sometimes when I hear this, the term soft circle, I get suspicious uh, for, that, for that very reason. Um, in any event, well, thanks so much for being here again. Um, it was a real pleasure to speak with you and to hear your insights. And then of course, congrats on the success of Crescent Cove. We're really excited to watch you guys continue to grow. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you for having me on. Of course. And thanks everyone for listening to this episode of Fundraising Focus.